0: Please open your Bibles if you have one to Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 1. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. The text is written on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. Last week we read and studied Paul's magisterial sentence, verses 3 through 14, and we looked at it sort of as an overview. There will be no PowerPoint this morning. Um, (laughs) The PowerPoint is available. The reason I don't like to gravitate towards PowerPoint is over time, it removes you guys from reading your Bibles and to looking at a screen. One of the most encouraging compliments I've ever received was a few years ago, a visiting pastor was just amazed at... The noise of opening Bibles and turning pages and almost brought him to tears and that's the history of the ministry of this church and I don't want to shift that to a screen. So I really only use PowerPoint when it is particularly demanding of it or particularly beneficial and so some of the things we saw last week of the, the use of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit could only really be seen looking at it as a whole. That's why we did it but this morning we will not be pointing with power. Um, that PowerPoint is available on the church website. If you go to uh, where the sermon's housed on our church website, that PowerPoint is there with the sermon if you want it. Mandy got a few questions this week about it. So this morning, we're actually going to begin looking at the sentence itself. We're going to look at part of a sentence, three verses, or four verses. Um, but let's begin by reading Ephesians 1. I'd like to read verse 1 all the way through 14. <clears throat> In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Lord God, as we study this sentence, as we consider the many reasons why you are blessed and to be blessed, we look at your blessings to us. And you designed that we would be marveled, that we would marvel at them, that we would be amazed at your grace. So give us eyes to see. Give us a fresh wonder. Guard us from being bored, uninterested, or even offended at the salvation that you have wrought. But rather, let our eyes behold the glory of your grace. Let our hearts overflow in praise. Let us join with the the apostle in praise and declaration of your blessedness. In Jesus' name, amen. So, this is one sentence in Greek, verses 1- not 1, verses 3 through 14. And yet, I suggested last week that we could be broken up into four sections that we'll look at over three weeks. Uh, The first section we're looking at this morning, verses 3 through 6, and then you'll see that the next three sections all begin in Him. So verse 7, in him we have redemption. Verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed. Another way you can look at these three sections is past, present, and future. This There's overflow. It's it's not as neat as that. But if you want to get a sort of overarching theme, this first section that we look at this morning is primarily focusing on reasons to bless God because of things he's done in the past. Namely, he chose, he blessed, and he predestined. And he did this in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. So there's an emphasis on the Father's activity in eternity past. In the second section, verses 7 through 10, there's an emphasis on the Son's activity. More recently, you could call it present, even though for us it's 2,000 years in the past. In accomplishing redemption, this is still sloppy because it also involves God's future plan of, of uniting all things together in the Son, the past and present. And here... The Son takes center stage in this second um, chunk, even though all three members of the Trinity are at work in all the sections. So you can think of the first section, the Father's activity in eternity past, the Son's present activity. Um, in Him, we've obtained redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. The second section focusing on our redemption, our election in the past, our redemption now. And then the last two sections looking to the future, to our inheritance and the work of the Holy Spirit. So, verse 11, um, we have obtained an inheritance in him, having been predestined according to his, the purpose of him who works all things according to counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be, there's the future, to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, again, it's, it's not as neat and tidy as past, present, future, but for handholds of emphasis or theme... It might be helpful. It also might be helpful to think Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as much as all three members are working. This is intertwined. Um, you even saw the predestination was referenced in the last section that I suggested might focus to the future. It, it isn't as neat and tidy as all that, but for, for our purposes, we're looking at this morning primarily at the Father's past activity. Next week, we'll look at the Son's primary His activity in saving and the Father's plan to glorify Him and And then in our third week, we'll look at the Holy Spirit's activity in applying our salvation and the guarantee of our future inheritance. So this morning then, we're looking at the predestined for adoption. Uh, And there's a reason why I gave that plug about that series at the secretary's desk. I don't plan on going deep into the philosophical arguments behind it. One of the things that I find striking about the Bible's teaching on predestination is how plain and straightforward it is. Almost all of the objections and problems with it are not grammatical, or not textual, they're philosophical. If that's true, then what about? If that's true, then what about? And those are useful questions, and we've answered them at another time, and I'll point you there if you're burdened to those questions, or perhaps to our ABF time. But I want you to see just how plainly this text speaks of such things. We'll just read verses 3 through 6. the beloved. So we're going to look at this in three points. The, the flow of this paragraph is as follows. The, the initial declaration, God is to be blessed. And then the general reason given. Why is God to be blessed? Well, because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then for the rest of this long sentence, and starting in verse 4a, we'll get some reasons, some examples of those blessings. So he declares, you are to, and I are to bless God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And then, beginning with even as, Paul starts to point to some of them. This is not an exhaustive list. And so Paul is looking at some of grace's greatest hits, if you will. The greatest demonstrations of God's grace towards us. And we start looking at them. So we've got he has blessed us, he has chosen us, and he has predestined us. That's how we're going to work through it. So let us begin then with the opening, benediction. I suggested last week that it was a eulogy. That's because the Greek word is eulogy. Eulogies we generally associate with funerals. Um, I was reading a commentary that said it's a benediction, which is simply Latin for eulogy. But um, it takes on the notion of, of, of blessing God. The idea behind the word in English and in Greek and in Latin is to speak well to speak well of somebody. So it's the point of the funeral where you speak well. You, you give words to the blessings of this person in their life. Um, we just had a, uh, a, a funeral for Bonnie Moyer, and, and we, we heard testimonies um, that Pastor Joel read of spoke well of her, reminding us of, of the grace that God poured out through her. And so here, Paul is, is saying that God is to be spoken well of, which, which raises our first question. Uh, and here's point two. I'll do this backwards. How, how do we bless God? Because there's a reciprocal thing going on here. We are to bless God because he has blessed us. And yet, I'm going to suggest to you that when we bless God and when God blesses us, we're doing two very different things. Two very different things are taking place when man his image bearer blesses him than when he blesses us two very different things and if we think we're doing one and the same thing we'll run into problems Um, what does it mean to bless God what does it mean to speak well of God I think it means to praise God there's your blank we bless God through praise your and my words are simply recounting speaking well the good things he has done so in Psalm 34.1, we looked at Psalm 34 earlier this summer. We read, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You and I bless God when we speak well of him, when we speak of the good things he has done for us, as he's about to do here. Here's the amazing difference. When God speaks well towards us, he accomplishes the good things for us. So you and I can rehearse, repeat, reflect God's praiseworthiness, the good things he has done. When we speak well of God, we speak of what he has done. When God speaks well towards us, he's not saying what wonderful chaps we are. Rather, his own words, his own blessings are the things that make us lovely, lovable, and blessed. That's what we're about to see. When God speaks well of us, he does things like say, that one is mine. I will adopt that one. I choose that one. I will send my son. That one will be redeemed. That's how God blesses us. God's blessing, his word spoken towards us, actually accomplishes the good thing, whereas ours reflects it back, states it. So in both cases, you can legitimately say the party is speaking well of the other. In our case, we're simply saying what is true about God. In God's case, he's speaking good things to us that then actually happen in time and space. That's the whole logic of this passage. But there is a sort of play on words there. Three times that word eulogy, the noun and the, the verb is used in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. We're to bless him because he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. With every spiritual good word, if you will. There are the three occurrences there. And this is the overarching theme of this sentence. Paul's desire to speak well of to bless Praise God because of all the good things God has spoken to us. That introductory formula there, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, follows an established pattern of benediction in the Old Testament. As early as Noah, you would identify the person who's blessed, connect them with someone. So Noah says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. Or when Abraham's servant goes finding a a wife for his son... And he encounters a close family relative in Genesis 24, 27. He says, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham. Then he gives the reason why the Lord is to be blessed. Who has not forsaken his steadfast love. Or in 1 Samuel 25, 32, David, when he gets um, assistance from Abigail, Nabal's wife, says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. And here, the introductory formula is, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the introductory formula, which is an interesting thing to ponder. We've got to move quickly, but you understand the Lord Jesus Christ has a God. That's what this text says. The Lord Jesus has a God. It's the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then we move into the content, because he's blessed us. So, blessed be God who has blessed us. And we get three um, clarifiers of how he has blessed us. First, in Christ. This is the first of 39 such occurrences. 39 times the Apostle Paul will say in, in either Christ or in him, or some construction like that. He actually says it before even that, um, in verse 1 to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus 39 times in this epistle things are spoken of as being in him or in Christ and Paul has a variety of usages but I think the most consistent and the one being used here is this and is your blank is speaking of something being in and through our union with him In and through our union with Him. It doesn't account for every instance. I think in uh, verse 7, the in Him could be translated through Him, agency. Through Him we have redemption. Uh, But at least here, what we get is that God has blessed us in Christ. And I think the idea is this, that in our union with him, in our being united to him, is where and how we receive these blessings. It really is setting up Paul's mystery that he's about to unfold later in this epistle about the church being his body. There's the, the real um, making Saul the picture of union. In what way are we united? He's the head, we're his body. That's, that's the idea. If you look at uh, ch- later on in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, you see that clearly. He put him over all things. He put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. And I think many, if not most, of the references to in Christ have that picture in mind. Being united to and in him in that sense. Being his body, he being the head, us being joined to him. So God is to be blessed, because in Christ, he blessed us. In our union with him, he has blessed us. What that means, then, is the source of all these blessings is Christ. You and I have no blessing outside of Christ. How can I say that? Because, the text is clear, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing. If every spiritual blessing has been blessed with us in Christ, how many spiritual blessings are outside of Christ? You can do the math. Zero. If every one of them is in Christ, how many of them are outside of Christ? Zero. That's that's the rationale and the logic. So we have our union with him. Second, with every spiritual blessing. Now, the use of spiritual here could mean two things. It's a a phrase Paul uses sometimes to speak of location. Location. Um, Spiritual is having to do with the spirit realm, the sphere. And and he can use that even in the epistle in Ephesians that way. There's another sense that Paul can use for this word spiritual, and that is the notion of from the spirit. And that's what I think he's doing here. The reason being, if the notion of spiritual is spiritual as opposed to physical, spiritual as opposed to earthly, it makes the next phrase, in heavenly places, redundant. It is possible that he's stacking it up. He's blessed us with every spiritual, not earthly blessing, in heavenly places, not on earth. It is possible But if it's referring to from the Spirit, and that's your blank, from the Spirit, then we actually have a Trinitarian benediction, don't we? Blessed be the God and Father, Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, Son, who's blessed us with every blessing from the Spirit in the heavenly places Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have a Trinitarian benediction introduction. I think that's probably what's going on here. With every spiritual blessing from the Spirit. And I can show you at least one example where Paul speaks that way. In in 1 Corinthians 2, we won't turn there. He talks about the spiritual man judges all things. And what it means is that the man who is gifted of the Spirit, the man who possesses and is indwelt by the Spirit, spiritual wisdom, meaning wisdom taught by the Spirit. Later on in Ephesians, he'll talk about spiritual songs. And, And the notion is not songs from another world, but songs that come from the Spirit. So that's, I think, the idea. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, meaning from the Spirit. And then we get the location, in heavenly places, in heavenly places. And here the idea is not earthly. This is, by the way, one of the significant differences between the new covenant and the covenant at Sinai. The covenant with Moses at Sinai includes many temporal earthly blessings. A faithful, believing Israel should expect military victory, economic security. Um, They should expect um, fertility, fecundity. Um, They should expect crops and children and rain, among other things. These blessings are greater, the New Testament insists. The blessings of the new covenant are greater, but they're not primarily earthly blessings. There is no earthly guarantee. This is precisely where the prosperity gospel gets things wrong. They're, they're heavenly blessings, they're in spiritual places in heaven, every single one of them. You and I will judge angels, we'll rule kingdoms, we will reign with Him. But in this life, Paul says, all who desire to be godly, will suffer persecution. In this life, Jesus says, you will have persecution. And so, in contrast to the Old Covenant, these blessings are located not on earth, not earthly, but in the heavenly places. That, that notion of the heavenly, so the heavenly places, anticipates where he's going a little later in this chapter. Look at verse 20 of chapter 1. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Christ is currently in the heavenly places, seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is where our blessings are stored. Interesting that our blessings are in Christ and our blessings are where Christ now is. So there's your opening invocation. He's blessed us, blessed be God, who has blessed us in Christ through our union and through our union with him, with gifts, blessings from the spirit that are not on earth, but are in heaven with Christ. And now he's going to turn to two particular blessings that the father has blessed us with. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing, but now we're going to turn our attention to two. And so the first of those two begins in verse 4a even as, this is, that's the notion of, now let me give you an example of these spiritual blessings. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. He has chosen us. And briefly, I just want to look at the what, the where, the when, and the why. So what is it that the Father has done that in which he has blessed us? And, and, and the language here is straightforward and simple. People will ask, do you believe in the doctrine of election? Do you believe in predestination? If you believe in the Bible, you have to. These are biblical terms. And the straightforward meaning, I would suggest to you, is what it means. I'll talk to people who do hermeneutical backflips, trying to get he chose to really mean I chose him. So I just would encourage you to read the straight reading of this. What is one of the all or every spiritual blessings in Christ, what is one of those? It's that he chose us. He chose us. Now, Greek has a, a middle voice, um, which English doesn't have for verbs, and the idea here is, and here's your blank, he chose us for himself. Uh, the, the verbal emphasis is something like he chose us in reference to himself. He chose us regarding himself, something like that. Pastor Daniel can, can elaborate further after the message. Um uh he chose us in reference to himself. What does that mean? He chose us, it means he chose us. Now, yes, we ultimately will choose him, but Paul goes on not just to say the what he chose. Same verb for Jesus choosing the twelve apostles, but where? And again, in him. He chose us in Christ which is again making the point that this particular blessing is, as was said earlier, in Christ. In Christ, God chose you and me. And there, the idea, I think, of the in is actually through, through Christ's work of redemption. God has in view this choice is made possible in and through Christ's death. We are choosable because we are redeemable. We are choosable because we can be redeemed. So in Christ, he chose us Or with Christ's death in view, he chose us where in him, then when. And this is the jaw-dropping part. Up until this point, you might think, okay, well, I choose him and he chooses me. Maybe he chooses me in response to me choosing him. He puts this choice in eternity past. When did God make this choice? Was it when God learned that you and I would turn to him? This is what people I've talked to will say this means. God looks down through eternity, and he sees at the end that you would choose him, and then he chooses you, to which I have two objections. One, that's a really weird way of defining he chose, right? Fair enough. If he chose really means he responded to my choice, I think there are clearer ways of saying that. The other problem of such a reading is God learns something, right? God has to respond, And to respond, you have to learn something. So God has to look to, oh, Jeremy's going to choose me. Well, I choose him. Now he places this as an activity of the Father before the foundation of the world. This is eternity past. This is before there are atoms and light and darkness. This is the same phrase used to speak of God's love of the Son. Listen to John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Which even then suggests that this choice of the father is an eternal choice. Because I don't think we'd want to say the father ever started to love the son. And so at least before the foundation of the world in John 17 has this notion of always it's even possible the Father has always chosen us, has always intended to redeem and save us. He chose us for himself through Christ's redemptive work when before the foundation of the world. But then we get to the purpose statement, the why. Why did God choose us? For what? To what end? With what goal in mind? With what result? To be holy and blameless before him. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Now, this is an important point to get. We're going to get this again in the next um, statement of what God has done for us. Your and my redemption is not the end. It is the means to the end. Let me say that again. The cross work of Christ, his death On our behalf as our substitute bearing our sin is not the goal it is the means to the goal it is a step a necessary glorious step on the way to the goal the goal of the cross is to get our sin out of the way so that we can be brought before the father in his presence that's the goal according to first peter christ died that he might bring us to god God's intention in choosing you and choosing me is that we'd be before him. Now, we can't be before him unless we're pure, holy, and blameless. Thus, Christ must die for us. And this is also why God chose us in reference to himself. He chose us to be before his very face. He chose us to be in his presence. He chose us lovingly to be in a relationship with him. He chose us that in eternity future, we might be before him holy, and blameless. Our redemption, as wonderful as it is, is not the goal. It is a means of the goal. This is why when we explain the gospel, as much as we want to talk about how God has forgiven our sins, what Christ has done that our sins might be forgiven, the goal of the gospel is finally that you can be before God, beholding his glory. All of this has taken place. God has set this plan in motion so that you can be before the holy God, sharing in his holiness, beholding his glory in his very presence for all of eternity. That is the end goal of the gospel. That is the Father's purpose in choosing us. That's where it's all headed. And Paul says for that reason, he is to be blessed. What? He chose us for himself. Where? In or through Christ's redemptive work. When did he do this? Eternity past. Why? What was his goal? That we would be holy and blameless before him. That we would be holy and blameless before him. And then he's going to say something similar another way. He chose us. Now point three, we're to look at he predestined us. He predestined us. Verses 4b, picking up in love, through six in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through jesus christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved so quickly we've got six points to get through there's so much here you have no idea how much i've had to cut out to do this in only four weeks you could do 12 weeks in this sentence it is it is rich it is rich Okay, in love he predestined us. And here's another one of those words. Now, what does it mean he predestined us? It means he pre, beforehand, destined, as in destination or destiny, to determine beforehand. That's what it means. That's what the English means, what the Greek means. Or, to put your blank, he chose. It's another way of saying that. And whereas in point two, he chose us. And to make it clear, it's his initiative and his activity. It emphasizes the when, before eternity. He chose us before we chose him. That's the idea. He he chose first. Here, we decide who we see whose will is decisive. He predestined us according to the counsel of his will. He's the one who's active here. And the Bible is unashamed to make these types of declarations. Look at uh, listen to Romans eight twenty nine to thirty. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called; and those whom he called, he also justified; and those whom he justified, he also glorified. But The Bible, I think, the grammar, the language is really clear. Most of the hardest doctrines in the Bible are that way. The actual texts are pretty clear. The actual texts are pretty straightforward. The implications of them, the questions they raise in our minds, oh, those are deep and difficult. But I think a straightforward reading of this passage is pretty clear, what Paul is saying. And if you wrestle with this, that, that's fine. If you wrestle with this, many good and godly men and women have Wrestle with it, wrestle with it, not wrestle. There's no such word as rescal. Um, yes, mother, I know that. Um, <laughs> wrestle with it. But I would encourage you to just look at a plain reading of this text. Or to put it another way, if Paul wanted to say that God chose us, and not the other way around, how could he say it more plainly? How could he say it with greater clarity than he says it right here? Think about that. I'll point you to that sermon series we did where we try to deal with some of the philosophical, some of the questions. You can stick around with the ABF. If we can ask your questions. But my purpose here is to say how straightforward and plain it is. And rather than starting controversy, Paul puts this forward as his first reasons for praise. Sometimes people ask, well, why deal with difficult controversial doctrines? Well, one, because they're, they're in the Bible. One of the things I love about going verse by verse is you can't be accused, well, you can always be accused, but you can't credibly be accused of hobby-horsing, because it comes next in the passage. And when it comes up here, it's linked with praise. God intends to be praised because of predestination. He intends to be praised because of his choice. He intends it to fuel worship. This is Paul's first two examples of why God is to be blessed which means God intends for you to be marveling at, to be overwhelmed by, your heart to overflow with praise that he chose you. That's what God intends. So set aside for a moment your objections and your problems, and understand if you're a Christian here today, it's because in eternity past, the God who set every atom in motion, the God who calls out the stars by name, the God who forms every snowflake thought of and chose you, and me before the foundation of the world, and he chose us because he wanted us to be with him and in his presence. That's supposed to make your heart sing, that's supposed to make your, your lips praise, that's supposed to overwhelm you with his grace. He predestined us in love. Now, what did he predestine us for here? In the last one, the choice was for our being before him. In his presence here, it's even more amazing. He predestined us for adoption as sons. Now, remember how this benediction was introduced. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Here we learn the wonderful truth. He's also our Father too. And again, I want you to understand the gospel offers more than forgiveness. It's more than redemption. It's not less than redemption. And I'm not trying to minimize the glory of the cross, the glory of our sins being forgiven. But Paul is trying to show that so much more is going on in God's plan. So much more. You understand, a judge can acquit you, but only a father can adopt you. And so he has not only wiped away our debt of sin. He has not only made us pure and holy. He's not only determined that we'll be for his presence. There are holy angels who are before his presence who are not his sons and daughters. He's done all that, and he predetermined that you and I should be his sons and daughters, that he would be a father to us. He adopted us. And that biblical picture of adoption, and it's biblical. First seen, I think, with um, I, Jacob adopting Joseph's two sons for blessing. Remember, Joseph doesn't, there's no tribe of Joseph. His share of the blessing goes to his two sons, whom Jacob blesses. And then further on through Scripture, this picture of adoption involves a relational change. And that's the emphasis in Romans 8, a spirit of adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. It also is a legal change. It's going to set up the motif of the inheritance that's coming later in this sentence. Because we've been adopted into his family, we become heirs of God. It's supposed to, again, it's supposed to stagger us But here, I think the focus is on the relational. He wants us before his face. He wants us holy and blameless, and he wants us and determines that we will be his sons and daughters. So that just as he is a father to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul can be so bold in Romans 8 to say this For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's just staggering. We will never be sons and daughters like Jesus is the son. That's part of the reason why Jesus can say, I go to my father and your father. He's not quite comfortable saying our father. Teaches the disciples to pray our father, but my father and your father, my God and your God. We we will never be sons fully as Jesus' is son. But it's close enough that Paul can say he's the firstborn among many brothers. It's staggering what God is determined to do. What God is determined to do on our behalf. And then we get, um, so then it's through Jesus Christ. And again, noticing that these these things occur. These blessings are in Christ. And again, my blank here is more than redemption in him. Jesus dies so that our sins can be forgiven. But he also dies so that we can be adopted as sons. That's all these blessings come through and from the cross to come in Christ. Because again, there's not a single spiritual blessing outside of Christ. And part of what I want you to do this morning is get a bigger picture of what God has done for you, a bigger picture of God's grace and His glory in the gospel. And understand He chose you, He predestined you before you and I did anything, before the ages began, before the foundation of the world. He did it through Jesus Christ. Point D. He did it according to the purpose of his will. The ESV translates the purpose of his will literally as his good pleasure. And again, this is a notion of, a, of, a, of relationship and a loving God. This is not a dispassionate God who thought, "Well, perhaps for my purposes, I will." And he will make a good son. No, it it, it it pleased it made God happy. It pleased God. It brought him pleasure. To choose you and me for sonship and daughtership. It pleased him according to his purposes. And again, notice there's no way of smuggling in. Well, really, isn't it he seeing us? No, it's according to his will. And this passage is going to make an awful lot about his will. Look at verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. Or verse 11, even more clearly. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. When we get to that verse, I'm going to argue that all things means, get ready for this, all things, which would include your choice of him, would it not? We believe, make no mistake, we believe. We turn to him in faith. This passage, we saw this last week. The only active things we do, we hear the word, we hope in him. I was helpfully reminded of that right after the end of the service. A friend of mine came up and said, did you intentionally leave out hope? And I said, nope. (laughs) That was an oversight. There are three things we do in this passage. Everything else is done to us. We hear, we pay heed to the word, we hope in him, and we believe. We do those things. But those things we do are part of the all things he works together according to the counsel of his will. So there's no possible way. You can read this sentence and come out thinking God's choice of you and me is his response to us choosing him. It's the exact opposite. He initiates. He gets before it. He encompasses everything. His will causes all things to take place so make no mistake, your salvation, my salvation, our union in Christ is part of God's plan before the foundation of the world. And God intends for us to be bowled over by his grace. So let me summarize again what God has done for you and for me. In eternity past, before the world, he thought of you In love, he predestines you to be his son and his daughter. He intended for you to be before him and in his presence for all of eternity. And he intended not just for you to be before him as, say, the holy angels are, but as his sons and daughters, as those who can cry out to him, Abba, Father. All this he did for you, not with anything that you had done in view. The blank here is Unconditional. You hear people talk about unconditional election. And what is meant by that phrase, unconditional, is God's choice is not determined or conditioned by anything outside of himself. He has his reasons. It's not to say it's arbitrary, it's not to say it's random. What it is to say is God is not responding to anything outside of himself, it's according to his good pleasure. As he says to Moses, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Or as Moses writes to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 7, 8. Love this passage. Moses wants to make sure Israel doesn't get the big head, that they don't become proud. We must be something. And even today you'll hear this. The cross shows just how valuable you are. The cross shows the value of Jesus, not your and my value. The amazing thing is God wanted a relationship with us in spite of who we are. Not because of who we are, in spite of who we are. Listen to Deuteronomy 7, 7 through 8, Moses to Israel. It is not because you are more in number than all the other peoples that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, the fewest of peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. (laughs) Why does God love you? Is it because you're smart, you're clever? No, he loves you because he loves you. It's his nature. It's the overflow of his goodness. That's why he loves this has been the answer from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. God does not look for the smart, bright, good people and save them. God freely chooses his sons and daughters. God freely chooses those who will come to him. It's unconditional. And then we get another purpose statement. We saw in the last clause that the purpose was that we would be holy and blameless before him. Here's another. To the praise of his glorious grace. So he begins this benediction by saying, God is to be praised. Why is he to be praised? Because he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, in heavenly places. Such as what, Paul? Well, he chose you before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him. Such as he predestines you for adoption as sons. The praise of his glorious grace. So we're to understand this to be Grace. And, and grace is a, is a much more frightening thing, I think, than sometimes we give credence to. We sing about saved by grace, amazing grace. Grace is precisely defined as unmerited, unowed favor or blessing. And yet we spend all day, no, no we don't spend all day, but we spend great energy trying to say, no, no, God, God shows favor and grace to everyone, he gives everyone a chance as if God's somehow obligated. The very nature of grace means God gets to be gracious to whom he wants to be gracious when he first reveals his glory to Moses. Here's part of my glory, Moses. Here's a central part of my glory. I grace whom I grace. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Grace cannot be owed. Listen to Paul in Romans 11.6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And In our series on the five solas of the Reformation, you can go, listen to that. We talked about how to speak of obligated or owed grace, to say ought God to be gracious, shouldn't God be gracious, is to talk about square circles. It is. Paul says... It can't be by works, otherwise grace would not be grace. And the fundamental nature of works, according to Romans 4 4, now to the one who works, his wages are not according to, and ESV says gift, but literally it's grace. His his wages are not according to grace, but according to debt. So the nature of works is it brings obligation. When you work and you get your paycheck, that paycheck is not a grace, it's due. The nature of works is debt and obligation works and grace cancel each other out, which means grace cannot be obligated. And as uncomfortable as we get with that, because all the philosophical objections that come up to the doctrine of election are, well, then why didn't God choose this person? And the implied argument is he should have. You're not thinking in categories of grace. You simply aren't. What's supposed to happen, what's supposed to make praise, if we're supposed to marvel that he chose anyone. We're supposed to go, why on earth would God choose such wretched, rebellious people as you and me. It just doesn't flow very well with today's self-esteem culture. That's precisely where Paul goes in Ephesians 2. Go to Ephesians 2. He's going to remind us of who we formerly were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's how lovable you and I were formerly. And the entire thing hinges, but God, seeing how valuable we were, Seeing our limitless potential. Nope. Being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses. You see the emphasis of the text? We're supposed to marvel at the grace. Not go, well why wasn't there more grace for this person? You're not thinking in categories of grace if you're thinking that way. If you think God ought to, he should have. Whatever you're thinking God ought to or should have done is not grace. By definition. By definition. We're supposed to marvel. We're supposed to just praise him and bless his name because he chose to save us. He chose to adopt us. That's supposed to overwhelm us. Marvel us, stagger us. To the praise of his glorious grace, your blank here is undeserved. Undeserved. With which he blessed us in the beloved. The word, by the way, for, for blessed here is the word literally favored. Um, when the when the angel appeared to Mary, greetings, oh favored one, same word. We have received mercy, we have received grace, we have received favor, we've received sonship, he has chosen us, and all this is meant to make us praise him. I'm going to call the worship team up, we're going to do just that. There's no way we can look at this and not have a chance to respond in song, but I'd encourage you, at least spend some time setting aside your questions, your objections and marveling at God's grace that he would choose me, he'd choose you to be his sons, to be his daughters, to be before him for eternity. Please stand.